from the feature staff at the Columbus Dispatch. This is Life in the 614. Hi, and welcome to Life in the 614, the official lifestyle podcast of the Features Department at the Columbus Dispatch, coming to you every Thursday. If it sounds like fun, we'll be talking about it. I'm Ryan Smith, Assistant Features Editor at the Dispatch, and I know just where to get things started this week. Say hola to the latest area amusements by checking out Festival Latino on Saturday and Sunday at Genoa Park. There will be mouth-watering food, plenty of music, even salsa lessons. There's also the Summer in the 614 Festival. No, it's not sponsored by this podcast, but I do appreciate the name. Solidarity in the 614, right? It takes place Saturday in the Village Green in Worthington, with more music and activities than you can shake a stick at. If thinking about all this has you a little hungry, or a lot hungry, head on over to Flavored Nation on Saturday and Sunday at the Greater Columbus Convention Center. Dispatch owner Gatehouse Media is teaming up to produce this smorgasbord of an event that will feature chefs and dishes representing all 50 states, not to mention cooking competitions and demonstrations. Personally, though, I'm feeling a little silly today, which is why I'm happy to have the pleasure of speaking with Brian Walker, who helps produce the comic strips Beetle Bailey and High and Lois. He's also the curator for an exhibition at the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum at Ohio State University on Mad Magazine. Called Artistically Mad, Seven Decades of Satire, the exhibition runs through October 21st and features outrageous original artwork from the magazine, which debuted in 1952. Hi, Brian, and thanks for joining us today. It's nice to be here. So everyone of a certain age has a certain connection to Mad Magazine. Can you talk a little bit about yours? Well, I was born in 1952, which is actually when the magazine started. Obviously, I was too young to read it when I was born, but, you know, probably late 1950s. So I was in a pretty good time frame to sort of pick up on the classic era of MAD back in the days when some of the really great cartoonists work there, like Jack Davis and Will Elder, Harvey Kurtzman. The story that I tell, which is, is kind of a little different, my father being Mort Walker, who was a cartoonist, knew some of the artists. Uh, he was in the National Cartoonist Society. So he actually had a subscription to Mad Magazine. Uh, most of my friends' parents wouldn't let them read it, you know, or not even let it in the house sometimes <laughs> because it, I think it was considered subversive back then, and as it turned out, it actually was. Mm-hmm. Whereas my father had a, you know, a stack of Mads in the studio, and my brother and I would sneak in there, and then we'd take them and read them in our bedroom, and then put them under our beds. And I remember my father coming in and saying, "Who took all my Mad magazines?" <laughs> <laughs> So that wasn't something you probably heard in other houses. But I just remember looking at those amazing layouts, you know, that super busy compositions and double-page spreads and by these really amazing artists. And and then, of course, the irreverence of it all, you know, was basically telling us not to believe everything we were being told, that advertising was just a bunch of lies and politicians were not telling us the truth and all the rest of it. So I think it sort of implanted a bit of skepticism in my generation, so we never really quite believe everything we're told. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask if you think that that's something that reflected that generation or was something that really was more affecting a generation that way? I think it goes back and forth. I think that MAD was definitely a pioneer in that way. 
I mean, there was certainly subversive humor for adults back then, you know, with Lenny Bruce and, and Mort Saul and stand-up comedians and your show of shows on TV and things like that. If you go back and, and look at it, I mean, I think most people think of the 50s as being sort of this decade of conformist behavior, you know, the, the man in the gray flannel suit and all that. But there was some pretty edgy stuff going on back then, you know, with the beatniks, beat poets and music, rock and roll. And, you know, in, in comic books, we had Mad, you know, that was kind of like something new and fresh and different that was not the same as, you know, DC comics with Superman was always a little bland and homogenized or something. So the exhibition that you've helped put together covers a lot of territory. Can you describe some of the highlights there? Well, when I first talked with Jenny Robb at the Billy Ireland, you know, I had a, a list of exhibitions as a guest curator. This is the third one that I've done for them. So I have a list of ideas, you know, and she came back to me and said, well, let's do the Mad Show next, you know. And I said, so let me see what you've got in your collection. They like to feature as much as they can from their own collection, if, if possible. And they had the collection of this guy, Mark Cohen, who collected Mad for many years, and he passed away, and his widow is very close with the with the Billy Ireland. And so I looked through that and I said, this is very a good sampling, but I think it's missing a, a couple of showstopper-type pieces. So I contacted a couple of lenders out in California who actually live fairly close to each other, Glenn Bray, who is really into the really early Harvey Kurtzman comic book years of Mad and has the color concept drawing of Mad Number no. 1 by Harvey Kurtzman. <laughs> so you can't really go back much farther, further than that to the beginning, you know, that you can just sort of see the genesis of it. And then a couple really great full stories. The one that I chose was a, was a Howdy Doody parody. You know, remember back in, in my days, there was a show called Howdy Doody. It was one of the most popular children's shows on TV. And it was just this scathing parody of uh, of the TV show by cartoonist Will Elder. And so I, I just featured that whole story as one part of the show. And then, of course, all the way through the, the 60s and 70s, you had all the great mad cartoonists, Sergio Aragonis and Al Jaffe and Mort Drucker and, you know, all the people that, you know, my generation sort of grew up reading in mad in the 60s. And then it transitions into more contemporary artists. Uh, the new guy who's really an amazing artist is Tom Richmond, who has sort of taken over as the, the artist that does a lot of the TV and movie parodies. And we had, I know Tom very well, and I asked him to pick a story that he'd done, and he did a parody of the TV show Stranger Things last fall. So he loaned us that complete story as well. And uh, we also I, we also featured a complete story by uh, Mort Drucker, which was a parody of the Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta from the 70s, which is just a classic, you know. I mean, and it's so great to see the original artwork because it's big, you know. It's really, you can just see, I mean, the, the Saturday Night Fever pages just feel like you can kind of go inside them when you're looking at them you know because they have this depth of field in in them you know where he's, the character's walking down the street in new york and there's fire escapes and people hanging off of balconies all over the place and you know he's on his way to the paint store you just feel like you're in the scene you know it's really great to see the the original artwork and the other collector was a guy named grant geisman 
who is kind of has written a couple books on mad collectibles. Uh, I knew him from a long time ago. He's also a really, really talented jazz guitar player. And he's got a couple of houses full of mad artwork out in L.A. A lot of covers with, uh, you know, Alfred E. Newman on the cover. You know, Alfred E. Newman being the mad mascot. Sure. So there's a combination that was really trying to show the variety. I mean, my primary goal was to feature the artist's and not, I mean, there's so many ways to slice it. You know, we could do a whole show just on the cultural impact and the, the response to some of the stories and the political aspect of it. But I really wanted to highlight the artists because a lot of them are kind of anonymous. I mean, I know who Mort Drucker is, and you probably do, but probably the general public does. It's like, oh, he's the guy that does those uh, great caricatures of all the movie stars and TV actors. So I wanted to some, put some names onto that, you know, so people could say, oh, I remember this. Oh, that's what the guy's name is, you know. So that that was kind of my primary goal. Mm-hmm. So what were some of those artists actually like as people? I mean, are they as zany as some of the illustrations may suggest? I think so. I mean, cartoonists are what I call anonymous celebrities, meaning that, you know, you, you know their artwork, but their face isn't, you know, on the screen. So they can lead a fairly quiet life. Most of them are fairly modest not always that outgoing socially. You know, it's, it's often there it was the shy kid, you know, that wasn't the big sports star or the popular kid that resorted to cartooning as a way to get attention and make people laugh. I mean, I know so many cartoonists that fit that description. You know, they were they were the shy kid in the back. And somebody discovered one time they could draw funny drawings of the teacher or something, and suddenly they were the most popular kid in the class. So that's a little bit what they're like. The Mad cartoonists were uh, the publisher of Mad, uh, Bill Gaines was his name was kind of a character, a, a very large guy that most pictures of him, you see him, he has a beard and, you know, and he was kind of a paternal type character. So the the bad part of that was he didn't used to give the artist the, their artwork back, which is much more common today. That's sort of the way they do it now. But he used to just basically, you know, I paid you for the story, now I keep the artwork. But in compensation for that, he used to take him on these great trips. I mean, they travel around in Africa and Europe and all this stuff. So this whole gang of idiots, as they called themselves, (laughs) would go on these trips together, and there's pictures of them all goofing around and drawing on tablecloths and just having a great time. And I've heard a lot of stories. One of the artists that came to the opening who was in that kind of earlier generation is a guy named Sergio Aragones who is just the, one of my favorite cartoonists. Cause, you, know, you can talk to him about anything, you know, movies and film and politics. And He does those little uh, pantomime cartoons that appear in the margins of the pages. And I always think of him as Mexican-American, but he was actually born in Spain and grew up in Paris. Uh, I mean, he was chased out of Spain by Franco and then out of Paris by the Nazis and ended up growing up in Mexico where he couldn't speak the language at first. And so he's got great stories about all the days. And when he first worked at MAD, he used to sleep on the couch overnight because he didn't have an apartment in New York. He's really got some great stories, and he spoke at the opening. He's just a really nice guy. So, I mean, the magazine has changed a lot over time. You know, you said you grew up, you know, looking at the the kind of the golden age. How has it evolved over the years, and, and how is that reflected in the exhibition? Well, I think there are a lot of very consistent artists that have, you know, worked for MAD for many, many years. I mean, Al Jaffe's been working for them for, you know, what, 40, 50 years or something. So there is a consistency over time. I think in more recent years, they're having the same challenges that all print media have, where 
you know, the younger people are just not reading magazines and newspapers as much. Um, what's interesting is the timing on this exhibit coincided with a, a major turnover at MAD. They had always been in New York City from the beginning on Madison Avenue originally. And just last year, they moved the whole office and operation out to Los Angeles. So they're in the uh, DC Comics skyscraper out there. And they hired a new editor, Bill Morrison. And I was very interested to hear from him because the first issue of the new MAD came out in April, which is just at the same time that the exhibit opened. And he's talking about a lot of the things that they're doing online now. They have their own website, social media pages. And, you know, in this era of politics that we're in where the, you know, the news changes every day, sometimes even hourly, you know, how can you keep up to speed with that? With a print magazine that often will have a three-month production cycle. You know, by the time they get the artwork in from all the artists and lay the magazine out and send it off to the printer and get it distributed to all the newsstands and wherever they sell it, subscribers, you know, that takes a couple of months. So how can they stay current in that environment? And they're doing a really good job of it because I get Bill Morrison's Facebook feed and they're just hammering away at Trump every day right now. <laughs> and it's great. I mean, it, you know, you have to be able to laugh at sometimes, you know, what's, what's going on in this world today. And Matt does a good job of that. So why don't you talk a little bit about your own role in the cartooning world? You mentioned that your father was a cartoonist. Can you talk a little bit about his legacy and the role that you have in the, a couple of the strips that he created? Yeah, well, of course, my father, who just passed away this past January, and he was 94 years old, and really had a great career. I mean, uh, of course, his, you know he was a cartoonist at his college humor magazine, The Show Me in Missouri, and then went to New York City and started selling cartoons to magazines like the Saturday Evening Post. And out of that grew Beetle Bailey, which started in 1950, which was originally, uh, he was a college kid in the beginning, based upon my father's experiences at University of Missouri. And the strip really wasn't going anywhere, and they decided, well, maybe we should have him enlist. The Korean War was getting started, and, and that kind of helped the strip survive initially. And then after the Korean War was over, the Stars and Stripes in the Pacific banned the, the strip because they felt it was disrespectful for officers, and that gave the strip a huge jump, you know, picked up like a hundred more papers. And it just kept climbing and climbing all the way through the 60s until it's peaked out at about 1,800 newspapers in like 30 different countries all around the world. And High and Lois is actually a spin-off of Beetle Bailey. A lot of people don't know that Lois is Beetle's sister. Oh. And there was actually a story in 1953 uh, Three, I believe, where Beetle goes home on furlough, and my father was considering sending Beetle back into civilian life, so Beetle is visiting his sister and his, his uh, brother-in-law, High, and he's saying, well, maybe I'll just go back and come back home, and all the readers wrote in and said, no, send him back to the Army. We love Sarge, and we love the general. And so the syndicate, King Features, said, maybe you should start a second strip. You know, you've got a, your family of your own now, and you do a family strip. And so he teamed up with a really great cartoonist, Dick Brown, who's one of my favorite cartoonists of all time. And so my father and his staff did the writing, and uh, Dick Brown drew it for many years. I got involved in the family business back in the mid-80s. So I've been doing it for a while now, over 30 years. And I do a lot of the writing on both strips now. I write about three-quarters of High and Lois and probably about a little over a quarter of the Beetle Bailey ideas are mine. And 
I draw up what are called gags. They're like little storyboards. And then somebody else does the finished art in each case. So I also started working with my father at the Museum of Cartoon Art when we started that back in 1974. And out of that, I've developed a whole interest in cartoon scholarship. I've written a lot of books about comics history. I curate exhibits like the one at the Billy Ireland. So I've continued to do that as well. And I think it gives me kind of an interesting background in that I know how hard cartoonists work and the challenges of being a professional cartoonist. And it helps me understand what these cartoonists were like in the past, you know, where somebody like Winsor McKay sat down at his drawing board and, you know, you look at this brilliant artwork, but he was working on deadline. You know, you know he had to get that finished by the end of the day to give it to the production guys so they could print it in the newspaper the next day. So, so it's not all just purely creative impulse some of it is i say sometimes it's like trying to be funny while someone's holding a gun to your head or something (laughs) you know it's sort of creativity on demand and you have to keep that in mind sometimes i mean cartoonists are very prolific particularly the you know the newspaper strip cartoonists they have to do a strip 365 days a year but even with the mad guys they have to do their stories and you know however, however many monthly issues mad has changed in frequency from monthly to bi-monthly and sort of back and forth a couple of times. But, you know, it's, it's a pretty regular gig for these guys. Mm-hmm. Have you ever wanted to do anything like the Mad Artists do where you're poking fun at pop culture? Uh, we do that in, in our strips. I mean, I, our strips, the deadline is kind of far off, so you can't be too current. But, you know, certainly high and low. Is, when I started working on the strip back in the 80s, 80s the computers were really not in all homes yet. Even a thing like a VCR was a new thing. Certainly not cell phones and or video games. So we slowly changed high and low. I mean, my editor used to say, like, change it so people don't notice it, you know. So they drive, they're not driving around in a big, you know, woody station wagon like we used to have in the 60s, you know. It's more like a, you know, like an, a mini SUV or something or a little economy car. So you have to change things like that to stay current. And, you know, also about, I mean, I just did a high and lowest gag that was in the paper on Sunday about all these movies that are in the movie theater now with, you know, Mama Mia 2 and Incredibles 2 and Mission Impossible, whatever, 5 or however many there are. And high and lowest sort of liked it to end up deciding to stay home and watching 60 minutes because it's a new episode, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was funny on the website, so people got into a big debate about it, you know turned into a political debate somehow. So people respond to that, but there's a lot of times with High and Lois where people will say, you know, I've been reading this strip for years and I like it because it isn't political, you know. And the newspapers just hit me over the head, you know, all day long with this stuff. I need a break from it, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't go to High and Lois to, to read political commentary. So there's a time and place for it, but, you know, I think you can overdo it. But I remember when I first started writing from my father for Beetle Bailey and I was trying to write these political commentary ideas and my father said this isn't Doonesbury you know this is Beetle Bailey (laughs) (laughs) so you have to kind of know what your niche is I think wonderful Brian thank you so so much for taking the time to talk with us today and we're really looking forward to checking out the exhibit yeah great to talk with you and uh, I'm actually coming out there in September which I think the mad exhibit's going through October maybe so I'll get a chance to get a last look at it before they take it down which is always kind of a sad thing you put all this work into it you go to the opening where the opening was really a blast I mean the turnout was tremendous and then you go and you never see it again it's over (laughs) but I'll get to be out there in September and see it again oh that'll be nice yeah okay 
All right. Take care, Brian. All right. Bye. And thank you all for listening to Life in the 614. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. We hope to have you back next week. Until then, keep enjoying your own life in the 614.